and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. January 25th, 2024, the election no one wants edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime, who is warm but never gloomy in New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. I, I'm going to have to live up to that, damn it. And from New Haven, Connecticut, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. This week on the GabFest, Trump won the New Hampshire primary. Can anything save America from a Trump-Biden rematch? Does America want to be saved from a Trump-Biden rematch? Is this the election that we need <laughs> slash deserve? Then... Is the vibe session finally over? We're going to talk about the vibe session, my favorite new term of 2024, 2023. Then can Congress pass meaningful immigration legislation? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance Plus, save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Trump won the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday over Nikki Haley, despite a pretty decent turnout of independence for Haley. So, John, was this a big win or a small win for Trump? What what good news did it herald for him? What warning signs did it herald for him? Well, I think it's just like what we said in Iowa, which is big win, which I- includes the numerical win and also the all the endorsements that came leading up to New Hampshire on the day of New Hampshire and following New Hampshire, which is more, um, does not obviously have to do with the vote, but is just a reminder again that the party is backing him and backing a nominee or a likely nominee isn't that would be what you'd have in a normal race. This is people backing somebody who spent months trying to overthrow an election, somebody who should be politically toxic. And now what happens is that you have all the leadership of the party lining up behind him and his strength in the party is so powerful that Mitch McConnell, uh, according to Punchbowl, told his Republican colleagues uh, they should go slow or cancel their efforts to try to find immigration reform. And we'll talk about that in the topic, but because Trump doesn't want it. Here you have Mitch McConnell. I mean, there was a time in American history when members of Congress didn't listen to a president because they were their own independent actors. Now it's not only listening to a president, listening to a presidential candidate. Um, So his power is um, overwhelming. However, Yes, there were those independent or those undeclared voters who voted for uh, Nikki Haley and who said basically in a general election, if it's Trump versus Biden, they're either going to vote for Biden or not vote at all. And um, and it shows that basically Trump may very well have shrunk the Republican, at least primary electorate, caucus electorate into something smaller and harder than even his 2020 
base. Um, and that's not great for the Republican Party because everything he's doing, including in his totally thin skinned reaction to Nikki Haley, is only going to exacerbate his problems with the voters he needs to bring back who he lost in 2020. Emily, let's just linger for a minute on Nikki Haley, who is still running. She has her home state of South Carolina coming up. Uh, she will lose that, we presume. And that will be that, right? I think so. I mean, it does seem like in some ideal world for the party, she might have more of a runway because this is finally the two-person race that Trump has never faced. On the other hand, I imagine that her defeat in South Carolina is going to be resounding. And it doesn't really seem like she has a path to bringing together the different parts of the primary electorate for the Republicans that she would need to have. It is interesting to me that she, at least I think, is being more aggressive toward Trump. Like she seems to finally be kind of taking some shots at him. And, um, you know, I mean, that feel it feels like a real not real race. It feels like a You're, real she is being much more. Right uh, she's drawing lines um uh, much more sharply talking about his senior moments, talking about his his criminal trials um, and and lingering on and having fun with his miss, you know, calling her uh, Nancy Pelosi or, you know, using her name when he met Nancy Pelosi and using it as a way to talk about his decline. I think he's mentally fit, but I think he's declining. And that's the you know, look, do we really want two 80 year old candidates running for president? Because the concern I have is look at Joe Biden two years ago. Look at how much he's declined in these two years. What I'm saying is, why can't we go and finally get all of these people out of D.C. and go with new generational people? Do they have to stick around this long when we see what a mess the country is in? Which, going with my previous theory that the worst thing you can do uh, to beat Donald Trump is beat Donald Trump, um, it's causing heartburn in the party because if you've endorsed Donald Trump, you are you have papered over his character flaws, the decline, the criminal cases, the fact he tried to overthrow an election for multiple months. You've papered all of that over. You don't want Nikki Haley running a campaign to bring all of that out into the open, even though it's not going to help her. You don't want this conversation to, to come out. I mean, look at what happened to Senator Tim Scott. He, who was appointed to his seat by Nikki Haley, is stood behind Trump at Trump's victory in, in New Hampshire. Very smart political move by Trump, genius political move by Trump. But then Trump turns to, to Tim Scott and says, boy, she appointed you. You must really hate her. Puts him in this awful position, which he put himself in. I mean, it's not that he is a, he's a grown adult who, who made this choice himself. But Tim Scott, even though he dropped out and did not participate in the New Hampshire primary, had a very bad New Hampshire primary evening. Nobody wants more of that. So end the race so that there aren't those kinds of moments. Um, so I think that Nikki Haley is drawing these sharp lines, but they're not likely to um, be effective because of Trump's support and because there's a general desire not to have this conversation. Do they matter the shot she's taking at him about, you know, um, seeming out of it, et cetera, seeming so brittle and unable to take criticism? I mean, is she creating a set of talking points that like are going to show up in democratic ads later are just going to penetrate to voters outside of the obsessed with politics sphere, or is it just like the wrong timing for that? Well, I think it's, a, I, I'm not sure. I can imagine a couple of possible realities. One, the fact that Trump keeps calling her bird brain. I can imagine there are probably some women out there who have in their lives been, uh, had their intelligence challenged by men who felt threatened by them. 
And so to the extent that they see their experience in the way he treats um, uh, women is probably not great for him since suburban women were a group that he lost um, and was a part of his uh, the reason he lost in, in 2020. Do men ever get called bird brains? Like it just seems like an insult that only gets lobbed at women. And I always think uh, of no. Maisie Bird. But there are things that men only get called egg. too, like asshole, dickhead. Well, I know, but this is about like your intellectual capability. Right. So it has a particular. And also he of- defaulted to, you know, raise like using her first given name, um, you know, saying wherever she comes from, as if he didn't know that she was from South Carolina. It's the same thing he did with Elaine Chow. Um, I know, but John, like, yes, I understand. But, 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 but get to the whatever. I mean, oh, okay. what, so he's done Emily's a million point. of these things. A billion well, of and them. he lost the 2020 election and his candidates lost in 2022. So they have been. A problem for him in the past. They have not. They are not a problem in his party. But to Emily's question, do any of these things hurt him later? Those are things that might hurt him later because they hurt him in 22 and in 2020. So the extent to the to which this race continues, the groups he's weakest with, he is minting fresh evidence of why uh, he's going to continue to be weak with them. And because you have a party that is now associated with the abortion decision, I can imagine. Um, uh, additional issues that are caused by, um, which is an issue that a lot of women voters care about. Um, it's going to be hard to imagine how this doesn't um, hurt him in the general. Because I'm already turning to the general. I'm pivoting to video now. I'm pivoting to the general. Is it to Trump's advantage to basically vanish for the next eight months? Or, or the less he is visible, the better. Is it this a situation where he he shouldn't actually try to be public and campaign a lot because the more visible he is, probably the more people will be reminded of what they don't like about him. That's the first question. The second question is, does he have the, would he ever do that? Is that a desire of his? Um, and, and the third question is like, who, who does it advantage for the general election to start so soon? John, does it advantage one candidate or the other Biden or Trump? It's almost certainly the case that it would be better, be better for him if he disappeared um, and stopped reminding those voters that he needs. And remember, when we talk about the voters he needs, it's a small group in a few battleground states. It's not a lot of people. Um, so there's obviously an asterisk with everything I say, because um, the shape of this electorate is going to be um, small and and so can be moved by um, maybe smaller things than I think, or is uh, he's got more support in those states than I think, or the support is not as weak or as damaged by all these things I'm mentioning. Um, he should disappear. What he should have done after Nikki Haley gave her speech after the New Hampshire primaries, he should have said, I thank her for congratulating me on to fighting Biden. It just completely ignored her. But his inability to show restraint or control and the absolute itchiness on his skin, at, at, at which is obviously amusing that he's uh, claiming that she's not accepting defeat when he has made it into, um, you know, a professional effort to not accept his defeat in the last election is like it, the literal incapacity he has to manage this Haley thing is, um, you know, goes right to all of the things he demonstrated as president, which is that he has no impulse control on some things. And if there's one thing a president needs, impulse control. Who does it help? I suppose it helps Biden the faster you get to a not a referendum, but a but a choice. Emily, do you do you agree with that? Do you think it is advantageous to Biden that it is now a two man race and we can focus not simply on whatever failings Biden and the Biden presidency have brought us, but on 
the prospect of one of these two men is likely to be president for the next four years, which one do you want it to be? Yeah, I think so. I think Biden does better when he's being compared to Trump. I mean, Trump also can't disappear. I mean, he's constitutionally incapable of disappearing, like you said. That is in the Constitution, I think. It is. (laughs) Section 18B. Um, uh, But also, there are these looming criminal matters that he's facing that are going to be in the news no matter what. And civil matters. Um, So there's that. He's going to be kind of trailing his legal issues and his... He's going to be super combative about that. And again, that just may play differently with the sliver of the electorate you're talking about, John, than it has with the Republican primary voters, I mean. I I think maybe the best case for Biden for the general election is that people spend lots of time with Trump and that's they they develop that sense of agitation and unhappiness that so many of us had in the last in all all of the Trump presidency, but particularly leading up to the election. And they sense that they, I just don't, I don't want to experience that. I don't want to have to think about this man all the time. And so the one act I can take to help me not have to think about this man is to vote against him. Um, That's what I think Biden needs to hope for. My worry is that perhaps that what's going to happen is people are going to just get more disgusted with politics because they're going to see this election and disgust with politics translates into sometimes people tuning out. And then that allows the the activists, the people who are who are enthusiastic to come out and they come that's Trump has a huge number of those and they come out and vote for him. And Biden gets a slightly smaller turnout than he would otherwise get. And Biden is hurt by, in fact, Trump's presence because it create Trump made this situation where people hated politics even more and that hurt him. So I don't know. I can see it, either one of those things happening. And weirdly, and as usual, we really only care about that dynamic in Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Uh, Nevada. Nevada. One. It's just always so strange. Hey, you know, Ron DeSantis dropped out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is amazing. If you were to look on paper, you know, a veteran, experience in Washington, successful in an important state for Republicans, beloved by his voting constituents as proved in the 2022 election, uh, connections with evangelicals supported by the governor of Iowa versus, you know, uh, a candidate who had been accused by all the leaders of his party of working to overthrow an election and and shred the Constitution. You would think that, you know, on paper, the, the governor would do a little bit better than getting wiped out after one contest. Um, it also proves that the authenticity um metric in politics is meaningless because Ron DeSantis was very authentic. He was just authentically, um, he apparently made people uncomfortable with his authenticity. I, I, John, I just do want to give you credit because you very early on when Emily and I were talking about how DeSantis, you know, was DeSantis just going to roll to the nomination and how interesting it was. He's got it all. He's going to roll. You were so skeptical because I think you understood that when he actually had to campaign and when people were faced with that terrible smile and that terrible voice and his generally unpleasant and unlikable public demeanor, they would not grok to it. And indeed, ungrok they did. 
I appreciate that because I'm feeling very bruised this morning uh, because, it, you know, when Donald Trump claimed the last election was stolen, I made this big pronouncement about like how that was going to be a huge disaster for democracy and would would um, affect the fortunes of those who didn't call him out in his own party. I was right about the democracy part could not have been more wrong about the fortunes of the people who did not call him out in November of 2020. So thank you for uh, reminding me that I wasn't totally wrong about everything. Can we close actually with one point you guys touched on earlier? So so John Cornyn, senator from Texas, it's someone who really interests me because I think of John Cornyn as being the, the last remaining member of the regular normal Republican Party, very conservative, but very just a, but a very effective legislator uh, and kind of a basic regular order Republican. And this week, Cornyn, who, and he's been Trump skeptical forever. Uh, this week, Cornyn, I think right after New Hampshire, endorsed Trump. And it made me wonder, it, I mean, he, he is like Mitch McConnell, but Cornyn is kind of a slight, is the next generation. Uh, it made me wonder whether these Republicans, the, the, the last bastion of regular people in the Republican Party, in the Republican Party leadership, whether they're going to merely endorse Trump or are they going to not not just endorse Trump, but act fully in his interest? Is Are they going to campaign vigorously? Are they going to be full-throatedly Trumpy? Are they going to just do the bare minimum and say, hey, yes, Trump, but, but then try to conduct their regular business? Do you have a sense about that, John? Maybe it doesn't matter either way. It doesn't matter what John Cornyn does or doesn't do. Trump will win Texas. Well, I think one thing that's important about or what I recognized in what Senator Cornyn did was, um, and this is why New Hampshire was a big deal for Donald Trump. So what happened when Donald Trump claimed the election was stolen is he got a lot of people whipped up who believed the lie that the election was stolen. So he yelled fire in a crowded theater. And what a lot of people in his party did is instead of supporting the cockamamie bananas idea that the election was stolen, they said, well, or that there was a fire in the theater. They said, well, all these people are running out of the theater thinking there's a fire. So we got to look into it. So when you yell fire in a theater, you cannot use the fire as justification to look into fire safety in the theater, right? So that's what happened in the election, which is to say John Cornyn, whatever his, um, uh, problems are with Donald Trump. He said, well, the voters have spoken. So in other words, the success in the primaries inoculates you against any of having to stand up for any of the things that Donald Trump may have done or applying any of the standards that you would normally apply to a politician and particularly a president. So of course, that totally turns on its head your role as a representative, right? Which is to use your conscience and standards to measure the issues of the day. But instead, and it's a way in which the presidency has just basically been completely handed over to the voters, the idea is, well, the voters have spoken and the wisdom of the voters means that we must all rally behind Donald Trump to beat Joe Biden. So the success creates a permission structure for those kinds of politicians you're talking about, David, who uh, speak in terms of standards and um, fashion themselves as people who believe in a set of core ideas that should be impervious to the political winds of the moment. So I think that is an interesting uh, thing that's happened there. And that's what I saw um, in the Cornyn decision. Well, he'll work as much as he as much as he needs to in a party where the base of the party is is so controlled by Donald Trump, which we should note is an extraordinary political achievement for somebody to have the control over a party 
and influence over a party that Donald Trump has. I can't think of a person in modern history who has had that sway. Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? <laughs> no. Emily, Emily's reflexive no, shake of the head no happens. I don't think it's in your control. A lot Sorry. of our listeners do want to hear more. And if you do, you, you should stick around for our bonus segment. Today, we're going to be talking about the crisis in American journalism, whether anything can be done to reverse it. But that segment is just for Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you very much. You have helped us keep the GapFest going these many years. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you know, thank you too uh, for listening. You you have done, I'm sure, contributed to your community in valuable ways. But we would love it if you signed up for Slate Plus. Uh, you would get bonus segments of every episode of the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, um, discounts to live shows, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site. And you'll be doing your part, perhaps, to reverse the crisis in American journalism, ironically. That is what we're going to talk about. So if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Kyla Scanlon coined the amazing expression vibe session uh, last year to express the unhappiness that Americans have about the economy, despite objectively improving economic conditions. Americans have been gloomy about the economy for months, even though the U.S. has had the best COVID recovery of any major economy, has avoided recession, has kept unemployment extremely low, and has brought inflation down nearly to pre-pandemic levels. We have talked about the Vibe session before and how it is particularly interesting from a political standpoint because it seems to really be hurting Joe Biden and Joe Biden's less re-election prospects. Um, but maybe the Vibe session is easy, and there are new GDP numbers that John's about to tell us. Um, and it does seem that Americans are starting to feel better about the economy. So, John, start us off with the numbers and and why those might be grounds for Biden team celebrating. Well, the economy grew at a 3.3% rate in the latest quarter, which is um, uh, faster than was expected, down in the from 4.9% in the third quarter, but nonetheless um, showed resilience in the economy. And um, first of all, we should just take note of where we were, which is basically there was a time 
2022 and 2023 when if you did not say out loud in the morning to your barista that the U.S. was going into a recession, um, you were not allowed to get your coffee uh, and you might be uh, chased down the street by an angry mob. Um, there are uh, Wall Street titans who um, went on TV every quarter of an hour and said there was going to be a recession. So there hasn't been a recession. And the market is at its, um, and this is not, obviously, the market is not a sign of economic health. But just in terms of the political wins, um, the market setting records, um, the S&P 500 set a new record. Um, and inflation is coming down. And so what this what this means is not only so you you have what um, people didn't think was possible, which was to have strong growth, low unemployment, and falling inflation. Usually, somewhere you got somewhere it's got to give. What's that credit to? Uh, the resilience of the business uh, environment, um, probably the Federal Reserve, and I don't know enough about um, Fed policy to really make this claim myself. But I mean, the Fed wanted a soft landing, and it looks like it's getting one um, by raising rates just enough. So that it didn't create a recession, um, but it's it slowed inflation. That seems to be what all the evidence suggests is happening. And I should note that last Friday, consumer confidence, back to your vibe session point, David, consumer confidence ticked up by the most it's uh, gone up uh, since before the pandemic. Still an extraordinary, extraordinarily high percentage of Americans. I think it's 41% think we're in a recession, even though the economy is growing, even though all the signs are good. A remarkable number of Americans are still very unhappy about the economy, and that is Emily highly polarized. So it's it's political. What's up with that? Traditionally, when there's a Republican in office as president, Democrats are more pessimistic about the economy, and vice versa. But what's interesting and related to your point is that for Republicans right now, it's more pronounced. So there are more of them who are more upset about the economy during. The Biden administration. And so that's probably pulling down the numbers. I was also struck by a study from the Brookings Institution about bad news bias. Basically, how often does the media report on the economy with a negative tone? And the study was interesting because they tried to look at whether that tone matched the actual conditions of the moment or not, whether it was out of sync and more negative than the facts would uh, seem to dictate. And it seemed like there was more bad news bias reporting and coverage of the economy in the last few years than there has been before. I kind of think that makes a difference, that people's perceptions of the economy are partly about what they think is happening. And if you're constantly talking about how crappy everything is, that that matters. I also think, Emily, to that point, it's very important to the political question here, which is that if people have a sense that the economy is bad, regardless of the numbers, it is very hard for Joe Biden or any Democrat to go out and take and like drumbeat how great the economy is and be like, take credit for how great the economy is and look what we've done and more P Americans employed than ever before and the stock market at records high to project the growth, the optimism, the we're back attitude that uh, really benefits politicians and really benefits presidents. Because if people are like, I don't feel it or I'm getting I'm getting vibes that it's not good. That is so discordant. So insofar as this this improving consumer sentiment improves media coverage or, or makes media coverage more positive, it also allows Biden and other Democrats as politicians to go out and start taking credit for the good news, which they have not been able to do at all for the last 
two years, even though there's been plenty of good news, they have they literally have not been able to take credit in a way that's been effective. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I was thinking about the term Bidenomics. And for a while, it seemed like something the Biden people were pushing. And then I feel like it sort of went away because um, it could kind of boomerang. And I wonder if we'll hear that again now from Democrats as they feel sunnier. And as, as you're saying, as other people start to feel sunnier, I also think there's just a hangover going on here that when there's been a lot of inflation and like the pessimism of COVID, that it just takes a while for people to feel confident again. It is the case that inflation is down, but prices are high. So inflation has come down, but a price of something is still at this inflated level. It's not that when inflation goes down, you know, a, a gallon of gas suddenly is back at 1977 levels. It's a gallon of gas stays there and doesn't go up more. Um, and so people people have to adjust their expectations about what a normal price is, which takes some time. And that seems to be part of this consumer sentiment improving as people have are acculturating. There's a study about how long it takes for the effects of inflation to wear off on people's feelings. And it seems like it takes a couple of years. And as an electoral matter, as Emily was saying, and the and the Times had that great graph about people's opinions of the economy, the most partisan Republicans changed their view on the economy the minute Joe Biden was elected. It had nothing to do with the actual underlying economy. And you could see I mean, that the, in the, the chart. It literally the graph goes, is so striking. Yes. It drops as much as the as views of the economy did during COVID. I mean, it is it falls off a cliff. Democrats, on the other hand, and this what this graph is, is it's, it's looking at opinions about the economy overall and then split by party under the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And Democrats get a increasingly worse view of the economy under Trump. But it is a slope of gradual diminution. <laughs> when Biden gets elected, it is it defies gravity. I mean, there are it's part of the International Olympic physics quiz to to come up with the formula that describes a precipitous drop like that. And so obviously, this is one of the things that irritates me about some of the polling is, and it's why the idea of vibe session is is useful. And also there's kind of a corollary, which is the way in which partisanship and particularly presidential partisanship is basically overtaken all reason. So it's hard to know what people think and 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 how many people's minds will change who will actually affect the election in those battleground states. Um, I would add one other thing is Brendan Nyan at Dartmouth, the political scientist at Dartmouth, did a paper with some colleagues about basically people's misperceptions about what a president has control over. CBS News had a poll that said 60% of the country thought that a president has a lot of control over inflation. Nyan interviewed experts and experts were given a range of things and asked how much control does a president have over these things. Inflation and the price of gas were at the lowest end of um, expert opinion on what presidents have control over. At the high end was things like picking a vice president. So that disconnect between what people judge presidents on and what they actually have effect over uh, is quite pronounced when it comes to gas prices and, and inflation. One thing I think Biden and Democrats need to do, I don't know how important rich people are to the election. Um but, you know, they do supply a lot of money. They do help shape elite opinion. Uh, they do, you know, I, I think the average rich person is more important to the election than the average non-rich person. And Biden does, I think, probably need to remind rich people how well they're doing. Uh, their stock, their stocks are high. You don't think so. You think he well, should No, no. 
No, no. I just think they're going to do rich people are going to do even better under Trump. He's not Trump's not going to raise corporate taxes. He's going to try and lower them again. And he's definitely not going to raise taxes on uh, those earning over four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, on the tax side, but not on necessarily the are my investments growing? Is my company thriving piece of it? I think there's a strong argument that stocks do better under Democratic presidents. I think the economy in general does better under Democratic presidents. Yeah, taxes will certainly be lower if if. There's a Republican president, Republican um, Congress. It's a really interesting question. I mean, certainly banks and a lot of companies that are fa- that face regulation would prefer Trump's disinterest in those kinds of regulations. I mean, also, just we should note, but this is you, you're you're making the, an interesting point, David, and it's the right one, which is what are the actual policies of the two people going to be? And Trump's policies in a um, inflation sensitive environment will be. <laughs> quite inflationary. I mean, think of the things he did. He massively increased spending. He uh, blew a huge uh, additional hole in the debt. Um, His tariffs are inflationary and his inflation and his immigration policies um, uh, would shrink the labor pool, causing a rise in wages, which would be passed on to it in prices. So if you're worried about inflation, um, there are Basically, the entire Trump agenda, such as it can be divined from the vagueness of his campaign, would be something that would be worrisome. I did have this this final thought because I'm I love vibe session as a concept so much that are there other things that are really run on vibes? One is vibe vibe migration, which is that a lot of people's feelings about immigration really don't have to do with the actual impact of immigration on them. It has to do with a, a perception about what immigration is doing to the country broadly, but isn't actually how it's how they are impacted by it. It's not that immigration isn't having a huge impact. It's not that all this this border surge isn't really real. It's but it is also the case that most people are not affected by it in the nearly as much as they claim to be. That's number one. And number two is 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 vibish prudence, which is that like there's a sense about the massive impact of a law on me. Uh, all the time. And again, I probably a lot of that is real, but there's also a lot of uh, inchoate anxiety that drives people. Wait, what was the last one? I didn't get that. Prudence? Vibus prudence. Vib- vibus prudence. Like jurisprudence. Oh, oh, jurisprudence. Prudence. I was, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. think that one's not going to fly as a cultural, it's not going to catch fire in. Uh, uh, I coined it like this second. I Give know. Vibe migration is really good. Yeah, I th- that's interesting. I think everything is vibes. And also the way a lot of the race is covered and a lot of issues are covered is all about vibes. And this goes back to polling. It's just like we could explain what's happening in the economy or we could just go talk to a bunch of people about the price of eggs and like – that's just so much easier. It's all, I mean, covering the economy through the election is really not healthy. I mean, what's not vibes is local, right? What's not vibes is like the pothole at the end of your street, the store that is opening or closing. It's the really local things. A bipartisan Senate group had been inching towards an immigration deal that would potentially have restricted the flow of migrants coming into the U.S. at the southern border. Uh, Republicans seem to want such a deal because their voters are really upset about the waves of migrants coming from the south. And it is 
it is probably the most fundamental issue that Donald Trump has has defined for his him and his voters in the past eight years. It is the the key issue in some ways for Trump. Uh, it's that the obsession of a lot of their voters. Um, Democrats want a deal because they want to diffuse voter anger, and they also know they're not going to get any Ukraine aid passed through Congress without immigration going first. But now comes Mitch McConnell to say what, John? Well, according to Punchbowl, which scooped this on Wednesday night, um, McConnell, in uh, conversations with his colleagues, said essentially that while they were on their way to a deal in the Senate with the White House, uh, that they might have to slow their roll because Donald Trump um, doesn't want a deal. Uh, and according to the quote in Punchbowl, McConnell said, we don't want to do anything to undermine him. So we should note, of course, this is extraordinary since McConnell has been attacked by Trump repeatedly and and uh, uh, in quite stark terms. Uh, Trump also um, used typical racist attacks uh, on uh, Elaine Chow, his wife, um, the kinds of sort of racist stuff that um, that he's been uh, using with respect to Nikki Haley. In any event, um, this is what um, is being uh, reported by Punchbowl. And the idea is basically don't give Biden a win, give keep the issue. If this is all true, um, and also I think you should leave some, some window open for the idea that this was leaked um, in part to give McConnell the last bit of leverage over the Democrats. In other words, if Democrats think they're not going to get any deal at all, because this is the way the Republicans are feeling, they might, you know, concede a few more things um, in the course of negotiations. So it could all be um, pantomime and not, you know, and all used for um, and all used for leverage. If it's not used for leverage, and this is in fact earnest, then you have this extraordinary moment where you have uh, the Republican frontrunner and almost certain nominee saying that he would like to see the economy tank before he is elected and not see um, immigration fixed in any way uh, because of his electoral prospects. And of course, remember that it's not just the human beings at the border, but it's also tied to aid to Ukraine and Israel that would be held up here in order to um, be helpful and effective to Trump in the election. So uh, that's kind of extraordinary. Emily, do you want to explain a little bit about what they're negotiating around? Because there's so many different pieces of this immigration story. And, and this one, Humanitarian parole is a really interesting concept. I think most people, and I'm going to, by most people, I mean David Plotz, didn't really understand until this week and how, what's the difference between humanitarian parole and being a refugee, asylum, temporary protected status. And yet this is the, this actually is at the heart of, I think, what is happening at the border in some ways. Humanitarian parole is um, relief from deportation that the federal government can grant. It can do it individually. It can also do it for groups. And the idea is that you can work, but you're not on a path to a green card or permanent status or citizenship. It's temporary. It's two years. It can be extended. And the Biden administration has used it as a kind of safety valve for Ukrainian immigrants. Um in the past, it was used for immigrants from Afghanistan. It's a way of basically letting people stay for a couple of years um, in a way that they can work. And the numbers have gone up under Biden. Um, and the question is, how much are the Democrats willing to give to the Republicans um, in order to bring these numbers down? That's the Republican goal. And the Republicans really want a hard cap on the number of people um, who can be allowed to stay in the country in this way. 
And the Democrats don't want a hard cap. They want something that is more flexible because they say they may need to respond to an international crisis or some other reason that you wouldn't want to predetermine how many people can come in this way. These are not asylum seekers, right? These are these are people who are... They might be seeking asylum. They're not asylum they seekers. They might be seeking asylum, but they're not on the path to getting asylum because they have been accord- because they have been given humanitarian parole. So they may still have an asylum claim, but asylum claims take forever to process. They have a really high standard of proof, um, credible fear of returning to your own country, basically persecution, whereas this is a different kind of um, off-ramp. And, and I think one of the things that's been so effective for the Republicans is the phrase they've used to describe what they say humanitarian parole is, which is catch and release. This is this is a very good message for their voters, I, I suspect. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I thought catch and release referred to something else, and maybe it has in the past, or maybe it's just that it is hard to keep all these different components of American immigration straight. I thought catch and release was like the people who get caught and then they're just like allowed to stay. They're not immediately detained um, or immediately turned away. This is these people have been through process. Like they're not just like showing up randomly. And actually there also are studies that people on humanitarian parole versus people who are detained are just as likely to come to their proceedings, to end up having to leave all those things. Yeah. I was also um, uh, confused, Emily, about whether catch and release related, and it may in fact be used for many different things because I don't think there is a hard and fast definition of the way it's used, but um I thought it was both if you were caught illegally trying to enter that your adjudication, sometimes because there's such a backlog um, that you were released into the um, into the United States, you know, and supposed to come back for your court date. And that also that was true with asylum seekers because there's such a backlog and that both have been called catch and release. But I mean, I do think there's something there is a reason why this messaging is effective. There is something intuitively mysterious and to many people frustrating and annoying about the idea that someone shows up, they, they don't have a right to enter the country or to work in the country. They cross in a, in a non-standard manner and they are allowed to stay in the country and work. And there's something that is like, wait, that's, what are we doing? Why are we allowing that? Why aren't, why isn't that person just immediately put on another side of some border regardless of how difficult that might be or detained regardless of how difficult that might be. And you understand, you can understand why that is an effective message to a lot of voters about that. We've lost control of the border. If that's the case. There's also the, the Biden administration has admitted what um, Democrats used to not admit so much, which is that there are um, it's not only the treatment of those who come to the border uh, and haven't, um, you know, waded through uh, the immigration process as you're supposed to. Um, it's not only uh, um, works politically the way you say, David, but also that it is a draw for more people to come to the border. Um, so there's this, you know, there are pushes and pulls, and there's obviously the push of the conditions in the countries um, that a lot of these migrants come from. Right. But I th- the Biden administration has also admitted that there is a huge pull factor to these policies that um, has increased the numbers. Yeah, and also the Biden administration is dealing with Democratic mayors and governors in states like New York and elsewhere, where the dynamics have changed because of these busloads of people that Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis have been sending from the South, right? I mean, 
in New York City in particular, this is a real Ta- uh, this is taking a real toll on city services and figuring out what to do with people, where they're going to go. All of this is a shared burden. Um, and I think that tactic, which, I mean, it seemed kind of theatrical when it started. It seemed like a performance, but now it's really having a political impact. And there is a kind of like, well, yeah. you know, yeah. you Democratic yeah. liberals, you said all these folks could show up, but do you really want them taking over your own city? This is what it feels I, like. I, Extraordinarily it's, it's really interesting to watch that develop. It's incredibly effective. Incre- I, yes. I walk up and down in front of the vice president's house and I would say – Three times in the last three months, I have been there as a bus sent up from Texas has arrived in front of the vice president's house as people. And you see these young women, Latino women, mostly carrying babies just lined up outside. You know, and there's a there's a kind of an infrastructure for people to come and collect them. But it's it's just an amazing moment. And and I, I look, I, I think what what Abbott did was wrong in that he refused to coordinate with the cities. He refused to give them a heads yes, up. And it's very inhumane. It's in, that part is inhumane. Doing it. But as a, but as a political measure and as a way of, of alerting people to what this means, I thought it was not, not merely like effective, but, but morally correct. I think it's moral. I think it was a, it was a very wise thing that's been good for the country to say, this is what is happening. So we all have to bear responsibility for it. How are we going to do it? And to, to make sure that then, the governor of Colorado and the mayor of Denver and the mayor of New York and the mayor of Philadelphia and the mayor of, of, of Boston and Chicago, they all have to think about this and deal with it is a, is real and good. I mean, it doesn't, we haven't resolved the problem. And if Republicans refuse to negotiate a deal, then that sort of uh, moots a lot of it, but I, I can't criticize Abbott for that piece of it. I don't know. I mean, the means and the ends, I feel like you can separate here. Like, he's doing it in a way that's increasing suffering. And also, the Republicans don't seem interested in really resolving the kind of fundamental problem we have with our broken immigration system. Obviously, in Florida and and Texas, they would, uh, Abbott and others would say that there's an equal moral component to the failure of the federal system. But that, of course, is no excuse for two wrongs. Obviously, don't make a right. It doesn't, um, while this has been effective. It, it didn't have to be effective and cruel to the people, to the human souls that you're using to, in your effective political move. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you were having a vibarita with uh, Mr. Bazelon on the porch of your vibe home in Vibe Haven, what are you going to be chattering about? Um, okay. I approach this with trepidation, but uh, Sally Forth, though I probably shouldn't. Sally, okay, do you remember so, Sally Forth? That was a great newspaper cartoon. Sally I was going to say, wasn't that a comic? Yeah. Um, I have been following with interest South Africa's charges of genocide against Israel for the conduct of its war in Gaza. I am not going to weigh in on the merits of any of that because I'm just not. However, I would like to recommend a piece by Yair Rosenberg in The Atlantic that is just about some of the basic facts here that I did not know. Yair's piece is called, What Did Top Israeli War Officials Really Say About Gaza? And he shows that some of the things that seemed most disturbing from uh, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, and from Netanyahu were mistranslated. 
um, and misunderstood. And his piece, I think, has prompted some corrections um, in Bloomberg in particular uh, and other outlets. So to me, it was a relief to read this because it seemed like the very worst things um, that top Israeli officials said they were really talking about Hamas, not all the people in Gaza. Anyway, this is just about the basic factual context. That's why I'm recommending this piece um, in The Atlantic by Ayer uh, Rosenberg. That, was, that wasn't that hard, a sally forth. I don't even Good. think you sallied forth. I think you sort of stepped delicately outside into the snow, decided it was okay, and kept going. <laughs> John, would you like to sally forth with a cocktail chatter? Uh, yes, I, I'm in absolute perishing thirst for one, but it's uh, early in the morning. Um, cursive is coming back to California schools. No longer, it was not taught after 2010. They're teaching kids cursive again because, as we all know, those of us who uh, struggle with retention and um, trying to stuff our brains full of things, that writing down information by hand um, sticks it in the old brain pan more effectively. And so now in California, they have um, made this a part of the curriculum again. So if you in your own life have found yourself too addicted to the keyboard, uh, go get a, you know, pencil and paper and uh, let the ideas um, really sink in. I've often wondered, I would like to see a study about whether the universality of keyboards and texting has increased literacy significantly. It seems like it'd be very hard to be an illiterate person now in a way that it, you could have been illiterate for a long time because there wasn't, you didn't have to be reading and writing all the time, but now you, yeah, so many everyone, people text, right? Yeah. But maybe it's, maybe they voiced it. I don't know. I'm just curious about what, how that's affected it. So those of you, I'm sure there are GabFest listeners who are hearing this, who know the answer. My chatter is about a great story in the Washington post by Eric Wemple, uh, the media reporter. And it's about a particular street performer in downtown Washington. Now, bear with me because I've talked in the past, uh, in a recent episode, about how the Washington basketball team and hockey team, the the Wizards and the Capitals, are being moved out of Al- uh, moved out of downtown Washington, this arena in Washington, pr- into Alexandria. That is very likely to happen. The owner of the company that owns the Caps and Wizards, which is called Monumental Sports, is named Ted Leonsis, and Ted Leonsis got a good deal in Alexandria and also clearly was irritated by what was happening downtown around the arena where there was a sense of disorder and the DC government wasn't helping out a lot and and there was crime increasing and he was just got frustrated about it and that seems to have been a significant factor motivating him to look for for greener pastures outside the city. So comes Wemple with a really interesting story, which was totally not a surprise to me for reasons I'll get to, that there is a, there's been a very annoying street performer in Gallery Place where the arena, DC arena is, um, named David Hallman, who has two young kids who sing and dance with him. Very young. Like these kids should be in school and they're or they shouldn't definitely shouldn't be as up as late they are as they are. And they have heavily amplified music that resonates all around a couple blocks right in the heart of gallery place. And in fact, right below the monumental sports offices and my girlfriend's office used to be across the street and she would complain all the time about how much noise this fucking thing made. And her company in fact ended up moving offices, not 
entirely because, but like a little bit because it was so annoying to be across from this performer. People have been spending, people who live above this block have been spending thousands of dollars to soundproof their windows. Um, There's a restaurant there, Clyde's, uh, which has basically lost a ton of business because people won't sit in the outdoor space because it's this music is pounding, pounding, pounding. And D.C. utterly failed to stop it because noise enforcement in D.C., as in many cities, doesn't exist. They don't enforce it after 5 p.m. They have a rule where they can't. The noise inspector is not allowed to ask for the name of the person who's making the noise. So you can't therefore punish them. There's no rule against amplified music. And there's also been this movement in D.C. because of there's a there's a store in downtown D.C. that has famous for blasting go-go music into the street. And that's seen as like cultural patrimony of D.C. And there was an effort to sort of silence the store because it made a huge amount of annoying noise. And then a kind of movement to protect go-go music called Don't Mute D.C. came up. And so there's no ability to restrict amplified music. And I just thought this story this, – and so what happened is – Ted Leonsis and the people at Monumental Sports got very annoyed by all this music, and it was a contributing factor. And even if you say this is like 1%, let's just say you say it's 1% of the reason that Ted Leonsis moved the Wizards and Capitals out of D.C., that 1% is probably worth $40 million to the city every year. I mean, it's worth an enormous amount of money. And, and look, we're old people now. Amplified music, public amplified music is, a, is pollution, it's pollution and there should it's invidious, it's selfish, it's harmful, it seizes public space for private gain. It steals the right of people to have their own thoughts and their own quiet and it costs any public space that has amplified music that is not, you know, at a decent volume and in controlled times and in controlled areas is one that has been been uh, damaged and polluted. And cities have got to fix it and DC has got to fix it because this one person with these two kids who perform with them has has basically helped contribute to the the degradation of the downtown of DC. So there, I'm going to stop there. Listeners, you've got chatters. Um, keep them coming. You you after we asked last week, you sent a great round of them. Please keep sending them to us at gabfestatslate.com. Our listener chatter this week uh, comes from Annie O'Connor, and it's about the lock picking lawyer. Hi, Gabfest. This is Annie O'Connor from St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm recommending a YouTube channel called The Lockpicking Lawyer. My husband introduced me to this channel after researching bike locks and incidentally stumbling into internet gold. I started watching these videos during the COVID pandemic when I was working in long-term care and desperately needed an outlet completely separate from work. These videos showed a problem with a clear solution from start to finish and was immensely helpful after long days of uncertainty. I highly recommend it to others that either love minutia or simply need a break after a stressful day. Enjoy. That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? So, uh, American journalism is having a really terrible, terrible, terrible week. Pitchfork was closed, folded into GQ. Sports Illustrated appears to be laying off most of its staff. Sports Illustrated, already a shell of itself, has become somehow even less of a shell. Uh, The Los Angeles Times laid off 20% of its staff. 
more than a hundred journalists. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety across uh, across journalism. Ezra Klein had a very good column listing some of these. Uh, the Messenger is reportedly out of money. Um, Vox Media has seen huge layoffs. Um, go, uh, Gawker and and the Onion, the company that owns the Gawker and the Onion, is trying to and Defector is trying to unload it because that's been a a, a problem. Popular Science Magazine is done. All right, you can stop listing. Vice is barely alive. Time has been laying people off. So what's going on, and can it be stopped, Emily? I mean, I think the larger dynamic that's been going on for a while is um, the migration of advertising dollars online to Facebook and Google rather than to purveyors of news and the sort of change in what used to be bundling, right? Where you would have news sources that um, had a lot of in-print days display advertising, and then they were purveying news alongside of other lifestyle coverage, and it kind of subsidized the news coverage. Digital advertising, much smaller percentage of it goes to news outlets, and it doesn't um, provide as much revenue, you know, per ad. I mean, this is a particular problem for local and regional news, right? Which is the thing that worries me the most in terms of what we're actually losing. Um, no offense to Pitchfork, Pitchfork is great, but and it's like it's a loss. I'm not trying to, but the thing that seems like a real problem for the democracy is the lack of coverage in local places. And we're watching this dynamic take place while a small number of individual writers are figuring out how to make a good living and do really interesting work on Substack and other forums like that that they can charge for. The problem is that you can't scale that kind of operation. You have to have a really small publication, if that's the right word for it, that's really driven by one person's voice and personality and just like brand. And so what Ezra pointed to, and I think he's right, is that um, there are these small, individually run um, newsletters, et cetera. And then there are some really big news organizations, including the New York Times, that seem to have figured out how to provide the kind of bundling that worked in the past. And then what's getting squeezed out are these mid-level, local, regional um, news outlets. and And that is a real loss. It's not like that kind of reporting can't be improved on because it can, having worked at a newspaper like that. But it seems like what is happening is a kind of race to the bottom. And another just element of this is that some of these outlets have been bought up by hedge funds that then just basically kind of rapaciously stri like strip them of all value and like kill yeah, they, them they off. Zombify them. The downside, yeah. of course, also is not just... Um, and maybe this is implicit what you were saying, Emily, is that uh, you're not only not covering what's happening at the local level, but you're atrophying or destroying the most direct connection between the citizen and information, which builds muscles and restores the power of the institution. So, you you know, I trust my local reporters because they tell it to me straight. And if you have a, a sense of trust there, then there is at least an opportunity that you could go up the next step in believing a, a, a news organization that's writing about national news, that it's a better gateway drug to institutional improvement um, than, uh, than trying to get, you know, good information from national outlets because not a, a lot of national outlets have disappointed people um, in part because they're trying to chase the market forces that we're describing here. And I mean, certainly in television news, television news is always, 
uh, threatened by having to be sufficiently entertaining. And we certainly have seen this in coverage of presidential campaigns, um, where it's in everybody's interest to make it entertaining. It's in the candidate's interest to make it entertaining because who wants to go and listen to like 45 minutes on the Treaty of the Sea? And it's on the television uh And it's necessary to make it entertaining because you're competing with other entertainment offerings. Now you're competing with millions of entertainment offerings because everybody can, I mean, including social media, um, TikTok. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.